Hello, I'm Chief Security Officer Fred Burton, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. To learn more about Stratfor Worldview, ThreatLens, or Stratfor's custom advisory services, visit us at stratfor.com. There's not a piece of information that doesn't go on the news today that doesn't have a big red bar underneath it that says breaking. Everything is the imminent crisis. And with geopolitics, it says, what is significant versus what's merely important? Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. The world isn't getting any less complicated, and it's increasingly easy to become overwhelmed with news headlines and the absolute flood of information we encounter each and every day. Here's the thing, though. The world doesn't have to be difficult to understand. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, we're sharing a keynote presentation from Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, delivered at the 2017 Mackinder Forum, named for Sir Halford John Mackinder, one of the founders of geopolitics as a field of study. Baker outlines the principle of applied geopolitics that guides Stratfor's work and also how businesses, investors, governments and globally engaged individuals can leverage geopolitical analysis and forecasting to inform strategic decision making and better understand the underlying forces shaping our world. Thanks for joining us. Geopolitics as a field is, is most often used, most often applied in things like state strategy. And kind of if you think about where the field emerged and how it was shaped, it really came into the ideas of state strategy, how to think about what was the role of the state, how does the state protect itself, how does the state expand, or what are the state's interests and how does it act on them and how does that understand the other states. It shifted uh, fairly uh, applicably into warfare. And for much of its history, it's been seen in those ways, even in a lot of the uh, geopolitics before geopolitics was a, was a term, right? When you go back into the ancient times, uh, the ideas of, of geopolitics still were about state strategy. They were about the state as, the, as the, the center of gravity. But as a company, when Stratfor was founded 21 years ago-ish, Really, one of its early uh, aspects was to try to take geopolitics and say, this does have application for business. And it has application for business. One, if you think about business today, uh, a lot of people will talk about multinationals and multinational organizations as parastate entities that have global interests and global influence uh, far beyond uh, their origin space. We've seen it at other points in history, right? The British East India Company, but in a very different way today. I mean, Okay, BP had its own army for a while, but most people don't. Um, most businesses don't, right? But, but they do operate in, in spaces far beyond a standard set of geography. They operate in ways in which they're not necessarily directly connected to their state of origin. Uh, there are companies, we had a company we worked with for a while that had a 63-country supply chain. How do you maintain and manage and understand a supply chain of that magnitude? If you don't apply geopolitics to even know what to be thinking about and what to be looking for going forward, right? But even non, uh, you know, companies that aren't these huge multinationals with these very broad, diverse spaces, 
we know that business today is integrated all over the world, and we know that things that happen in one place have double and triple and quadruple ripple effects in other locations, right? So if you have an increase in Chinese housing starts, that may hit uh, copper, but it may also have impacts on another few years down the road on Brazilian soy because you may have a change in socioeconomic patterns that's going to come, that's going to change food consumption patterns, that's going to change the input patterns into the agriculture, that's going to change where you're, where you're getting your products from and what you're going to have. So it's, it's thinking in these double and triple and quadruple ripples rather than the, one, the one-off direct connection, right? It's obvious if you increase housing, you're going to need more copper or you're going to need more steel. It's not necessarily directly obvious that a little bit down the road, you're going to need more soybeans because um, you need more beef because pork is no longer good enough for you. So, so those aspects, I think, do have an implication. And finally, there's a lot of political risk and political risk perception out there. Uh, and I think that when you look at it just from a political risk standpoint, it misses some of the underlying aspects and some of the underlying realities that may mislead how one looks at it. This, the Party Congress does a great case in point, right? The Chinese come out. The, the general narrative in the United States, Xi Jinping has consolidated power. He's the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong or, or Deng Xiaoping. His theory is now enshrined in the Chinese constitution, and it's all about building a stronger, more cohesive China. And no thought about, well, what are the limitations on that, right? There's a, there's a great contrary in the two slides that went up. One shows a Gini coefficient of like 55 or, or something like that for China, and the other says, but there's no more poverty, everything's fine. But the gap is actually massive. So yes, it pulled a whole large number of people out of poverty. But when you look at it structurally, you realize that, okay, there's 400, 450 million people in the Chinese working economic powerful class. And those are the ones who are controlling that, that well over half of the wealth. That means you have 900 million people who are not and are not part of the economy. And when you think about the Chinese government and they say, we want to build towards equality and, and bring that up, what do you do? Well, it means that you're moving into a moment of redistribution of wealth. And what happens if you move into redistribution of wealth where you take a coastal powerful element that's one-third of the population but two-thirds or three-thirds of the economy and you try to shift that and even that out to the two-thirds of the population that's up behind? There, there are implications, right? And so thinking about these in an inclusive aspect is what geopolitics does best. So I want to talk a little bit about a couple of things. One. How do we define geopolitics? Now, if you were to look around this room at half a dozen people, you're going to get half a dozen different definitions, probably more than that. Uh, I just spent the year reading all sorts of books on it again, and there's no common definition across the board. It doesn't matter. There's no common definition, right? It's all over the place. What is geopolitics? So what I'm going to talk about is, is what we will refer to as applied geopolitics in the sense of how do we think about it and use it in a day-to-day -day perspective. And again, in any field, there's a million different variants on this. So what I would say is the most basic definition uh, from our perspective is understanding the intersection of place and organized people over time. Now, in a sense, that doesn't tell you anything about the future. It doesn't tell you. It seems to tell you only about the past. But in many ways, it doesn't because what it is is how do I understand why and how, uh, for lack of a better word, national characteristics have emerged in different spaces and how those perceive and interact with each other and how those shape things. If we were to say, is there a Chinese way of doing business, a Russian way of doing business, an American way of doing business, in general, we would all say, well, sure. If we were to say, does anyone actually do it in exactly that stereotypical way, we'd probably say no. 
but, but there is this perception that there are these ways of doing business. Is there a Russian way of, of reacting uh, from a government perspective? different than an American way or a Chinese way or a British way? Well, yes. Well, why? Right? It's not because of ideology, uh, necessarily. Ideology is reflecting something that's emerged over long periods of time in that space and in that interaction of that space and those people. And, and so when we're thinking about geopolitics, the first step is how do we understand the world system? Right? So we're 500... 500 years, 500 plus years into an integrated world system. Prior to that, the world is largely sectional. It doesn't mean that Rome didn't trade with uh, China or that some Chinese you know, admiral didn't discover America once and leave it alone. But it means that if you were in China, you could in many ways think in terms of a regional space and not have to think in terms of Brazil or the United States or Western Europe. If you were in Western Europe, you were thinking primarily in that space, maybe a little bit around it, but not really worried about what's going on in other parts of the world. And today, it really is, it's, it's a closed to complete world system. And that means that complexities ripple all over the place. I think I, think I actually wrote this down because I thought this was great in rereading something. Uh, every explosion of social forces, instead of being dissipated in a surrounding circuit of unknown space, uh, and barbaric chaos, I like that, will be sharply re-echoed from the far side of the globe, and the weak elements in the political and economic organism of the world will be shattered in consequence, which is written quite a while ago uh, uh, by Mackinder. But the idea that in a, the concept of a closed world system, you don't have buffer between crises in different spaces, they have ripple implications uh, that can reach around the world in ways that you're not expecting, right? Um, we're used to the metaphor of throwing a, a rock in a pond and seeing the ripple move out. But if you imagine a pond, and then it's got all sorts of little bits of trees sticking up out of it, and there's some things swimming in it, and there's shores, that ripple doesn't just go out in one single ripple, right? It starts hitting other things, and that changes the directionality of it, and, and you have counter ripples that are going on, and then it bounces back off. It, it, it impacts the entire space. It impacts the entire system. So when we're thinking about geopolitics, what we're trying to understand is how to think about the ways in which these impact and implicate each other, and what does that mean for us today? We think of geopolitics also in the application as a, a synthetic or, or a, a complex study. So we look at geography, obviously geo, right? We look at geography, we look at politics, we look at history, we look at society, we look at economics, we look at security, we look at technology, we look at the intersection of all of them. In geopolitics, there is no economics without politics and security and society. There is no politics without understanding economics. All of these have to be looked at as an inclusive whole. Uh, so it brings each of these subfields together into, into a way of looking at them integratively. All right? uh, I pick on uh, political science majors, too, who you know, are sometimes so focused on the, the definition of the system that, that they start to forget all of these other pieces that implicate it and, and play into it, and that there is no such thing as a democratic system that's equal, equally assessed in different places, right? Um, what does democracy look like in Singapore versus the United States versus the United Kingdom? It, it's a fundamentally different thing, and that's been impacted by time and history. It's been impacted by social forces, and it's shaped them back and forth. So when we're looking at this, we're looking at the way in which all of these sort of pull together, that you can't look at economic trend lines in isolation of politics, 
the rise of China and how do you understand the economic rise of China without understanding the social structures in China, the politics going on, the security both internally and externally in the region. The change in Chinese dynamics today when you think about it as a, quote, expansionary power pushing out into the maritime space. Well, if you go back to the mid-1990s to the late 1990s, you're going to see that for the first time in Chinese millennial history, Chinese consumption of imported raw commodities starts to vastly exceed their domestic production. And China becomes forced to become integrated into a world system where throughout history they've always had the ability to be isolated and buffered from a world system when they need to be. So it changes the dynamic. So those play into it. It's not just saying, oh, well, the Chinese are a power that missed their chance 100 years ago and now they're just aggressive and assertive. There are economic forces that are compelling China to take certain actions in a strategic sense. Exactly what they do is their choice, but it doesn't mean the compulsion isn't there. They now also have the economic freedom to be able to act on it. So being able to think in those types of complex terms becomes really useful in, in geopolitics and in playing it around. Geopolitics helps you think about the difference between subjective desire and objective reality. There's not a politician out there who doesn't speak subjective desire. And it doesn't mean that they're lying or they're manipulative. They could truly want and truly believe the directionality that they're promoting or that they think things are going. But it doesn't mean that that's the actual direction that things are going. There are lots of objective realities that sit underneath. And if we spend our time only listening to the, the, the public discourse, we miss those structural elements that fit right underneath it that are impacting or constraining those desires or those, those wishes. We'll get back to the second part of Roger Baker's presentation on applied geopolitics at the 2017 Mackinder Forum in just one moment. But if you're interested in seeing Stratfor's methodology in practice, be sure to visit us at Stratfor Worldview. Worldview is our premier digital publication where we share daily analysis, strategic insights, and industry perspectives to help you make sense of an increasingly complicated world. It's also where you'll find our quarter, year, and decade forecasts for key geopolitical trends shaping the global system. If you're not already a Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now back to part two of Roger Baker's discussion on applied geopolitics and how businesses can apply this insight both to their short and long-term planning. So if I were to think about, well, what does geopolitics mean for business? A couple of things. Number one, it helps you to understand an excessively complex world in a simple but not simplistic manner. So one of the interesting things on geopolitics is, well, taking all of these into consideration, what it's trying to do is not be so full of every detail. It's trying to pull back and understand the general directionality or the general trend. And that lets you see the system without being caught up in every little aspect of it. So you don't have to be a specialist in absolutely everything or have a specialist in absolutely everything who's down into every detail. The specialists have a value because they're testing and challenging the subcomponents and the assertions that are being made. But geopolitics allows you to make very broad-based assertions about global systems. When we think about the world system, the world, first of all, is not linear. Right? It doesn't move in a linear fashion. The, the relative power of nations or states is not linear. 
there's There's a cyclicality to it when you think about it throughout history. When we look at the way in which the the systems integrate, it seems too complex. Uh, There's too much information today, right? I mean, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it may have been the challenge was how do I find certain pieces of information. Today, it's more like how do I get rid of information so I can actually pay attention. But by giving you a frame of a world system where you can build it up from geopolitics. We work with um, military and uh, academic groups a lot in the ideas of how do you do a rapid uh, geographic assessment of a space. And I pick random countries for them. And, and we make them actually not, in about an hour or two, instead of looking at, well, what has everybody written about this space and how do we, how do we learn what is um, Niger or, or what is Mali, right? You hear Mali in the news today. Well, what is Mali? What do you know about Mali? Well, how are you going to find out? Well, I'm going to go to Google. I'm going to type in the word Mali and see what comes up and read the Wikipedia entrance, right? But instead, how can I, from the bottom up, assess a space, make a certain set of assertions, and then be able to use those to ask questions that I can then start to challenge as I'm looking at the flow of information? So if there's a new space that somebody's interested in, and what we'll do with them is first Let's take a look at the basic geography. And by geography, I'm not talking about a political map. And I am definitely not talking about stopping at political boundaries, because geography doesn't stop at political boundaries. Even Australia's geography doesn't stop at the coast. The, so in, it's, what does the space tell us, right? Uh, if I'm looking in, we did Chad recently with them, and there's a lake down at the bottom, and there's a, if you lay population density, there's a population band at the bottom, there's a desert at the top, there's a straight line across the top, which lets you know also usually a straight line on a map means somebody divided it at some point. You think about the straight line and look at Libya up to the north, and you look at Chad and Lake Chad to the south, and you realize, okay, population center, population center, somewhere about midpoint. You can make assertions um, that Saharan desert to the north part of the, the, the Sahara, so, southern part of the Saharan desert. Well, this is both an empty wasteland, but it's a traditional transit corridor. Uh, sedentary population down by the lake. Okay, then that's going to be, have a very different type of uh, development. And then I can test those, right? So we'll lay out what's the geography, subsurface, surface, climate, things of that sort. What's the population? What's the population density, age range and distribution, how would I look at where economic resources are, how are they being exploited, and in about an hour or two, build a mental model of a space to try to understand it. And that creates the frame to ask a lot of further questions, but it also gives you a foundational starting point, not from a ideological perspective, not from a somebody else's assessment or writing of the market value of the space, but rather, how do I measure this space? How do I think about it? And then I can start tasking um, my researchers against that. I can start looking at the flow of information that comes in through the media against that model that I've built. And I'm using that information both to challenge and test my model, and I'm using that it, my model to challenge and test the, the, the relative value of the information. So the second piece that this does for us is then, for, for lack of a better word, what I like to call the information VIX. Um, if you think about stock markets, right, you have a, if you were to step back, you have kind of a, a daily trend line, but you have a volatility index, right? How much is up and down above your basic trend line? Well, if we think about information today, there's not a piece of information that doesn't go on the news today that doesn't have a big red bar underneath it that says breaking. It can be three-day-old information, but still breaking. Everything is the imminent crisis 
in the news cycle. It doesn't matter. Today we're not bombing North Korea. Two weeks ago we were. Four weeks ago we weren't. Six weeks ago we are. If everything has this sort of real noise space to it. And with geopolitics, if I can build that frame, it says, what is significant versus what's merely important? You know, 20 years ago, it was what's important versus what's noise. Today, there is a lot of important, but I really need to focus, well, what's the significant, the few significant lines? And if I can think about those when I'm looking at information, in many ways, I can bring my information down to a space about this wide instead of this wide. So if the, 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 the volatility in information is moving here, and I can have a frame that eases it down to a much more reasonable stream, I can play the gaps. I can understand when I need to be worried about directionality or when I don't. I don't have to get caught up in the day-to-day -day cyclical noise. So clear that, clear that noise out. Uh, when we work with financial service industries, a lot of them actually use geopolitics in the sense of day-to-day -day and short-term activity, which seems odd because geopolitics seems to work best in like 10-year blocks or big space. But they do it because what they're doing is they're playing the gap between the daily perception and media noise and the underlying reality. So every day it may be, oh, the, the noise tells us that Trump is gonna throw away the entire nuclear deal with Iran, that means we're gonna go to war in the Middle East, oil prices, you know. But if you know that there is a underlying reality, no, there's a, there's a certain set of constraints, it's gonna pass to Congress, Congress is going to have this baseline set of constraints on it, it's not going to move into the extremes. There's some possibilities for it that you wanna be watching out for, but not really. Suddenly, your, your space for operations is a lot more visible, right? So if you want to play that gap space, uh, it doesn't matter which side of the reality line it's on, the gap space is there and you can understand the difference that gives you a competitive advantage against others. So looking at that, geopolitics helps us to see the future. And it helps us to see the future by understanding the past and the present and looking at the way they're flowing. Now again, it's not uh, deterministic. It's not perfect in telling about events. And it's really poor sometimes in the very short-term responsiveness. But nonetheless, if we're, if we're stepping back and we're taking a much more strategic view rather than down into every possible tactical detail, it will tell us about the flow of future history. And we'll do so, we build off of the past, we look at the present, we lay against it. What are the constraints? What are the compulsions? What's the directionality? How do each of these pieces of the international system start integrating with each other? Now that sounds ridiculously complex, but remember that we use geopolitics first to oversimplify the world system initially. So it, so it, it gives you thin enough lines to be working with that when you're weaving them together and playing them against each other, you have a place in which to kind of step back and see. We did an experiment a few years ago in our company where we predicted the next 100 years. It was kind of fun and, and, and a little silly. But nonetheless, what it did is it played off of a couple of basic assumptions. Number one, linearity is the least likely path forward rather than the most likely, particularly as you get longer and longer out. Um, so that was one of the baseline assumptions. And number two, really trying to look at, okay, in the current state, what are the major constraints or major compulsions on the key players on the international stage, how do they interact with each other, and we threw an entire section on what would technology do to that. How does technology change or alter geography? This is one of Mackinder's big things was the idea of technology changing or altering geography. And then by the time he gets to the end of his career, he realizes that the Russians couldn't build as many trains and that airplanes are different, and it starts to change his mindset. But technology has a huge impact.
and in ways that are potentially unexpected. Technology in the sense of the development of Sub-Saharan Africa. Nobody was going to put copper wires across Sub-Saharan Africa. There was no business case for that. But cell towers made sense. And the cell towers then created an entire different economic structure that built on top of informal economic structures that simply utilized a new technology that allowed a complete change in dynamics in, in there. If we were to move towards a, a world where you could actually perfect uh, large-scale grid storage technology for um, alternative energy, Northeast India suddenly is a place that can expand where for years everybody's been trying to, but there's sort of no infrastructure or capacity and no way to tie all of the pieces together. But if you can have disassociated, disaggregated, small spaces of localized power that can use whatever resources happen to be local and store the power, again, it's that storage which is the big limiter on alternative energies, you can really change the dynamics of where and what's important. You also change, say, the input material. So let's say lithium is the most important. Uh, I think it's the end of this year that the court will finally finish its ruling on whether Chile or Bolivia owns the port. And Bolivia is currently a landlocked state. But 20 years from now, there could be heavy political, economic, and potentially even military competition in South America over control of lithium resources and access to the sea between the Japanese and the Chinese who are trying to dominate the field of battery technology. So technology can have these, these big impacts on it. But it tells us the future. Well, what does telling us the future mean in terms of business? Because again, we're thinking more in terms of longer term strategic planning and directionality of the future, not in next week or next month. And to be realistic, most business operates at best in a three month block. As much as they tell you they're doing strategic planning and thinking forward and everything like that, anything that's got a shareholder is working in three month blocks or shorter. And if you go into a lot of companies, you'll start seeing that they have meetings with numbers every week. And you lose that ability to think strategically. But what it does, if you can think forward, is say, OK, what are the places where in the international system we're going to be seeing changes that can either positively neg or negatively inf impact my business opportunities? or the way in which my business works, or the, the size of the consumer market, or accessibility to a consumer market, or competition rising up somewhere, or uh, destabilization in a certain space that has a ripple impact on transportation infrastructure, puts friction on transportation infrastructure. Think of the, the Horn of Africa uh, and the expansion of piracy, maritime piracy, that put a substantial amount of friction on maritime transportation. Then later there was the response to that, that brought in the Americans, the Europeans, the Chinese uh, in the maritime response, that you now have uh, every single country in the world having a military base in Djibouti. Uh, and and a, a significant reduction, though, ultimately, in the maritime friction in that space. But for a period of time, you had a destabilization of an area of the world that contributed to friction in global maritime supply routes. So if you can start to think about these, what you can do is then say, what are the precursor elements that I would expect to see that tells me as I'm coming towards one of these likely inflection points and identify two or three of these inflection points along this forecasting uh, space, what are a few things I might see? I can set up a system of monitoring to see, am I getting near to one of those inflection points and which way does it appear to be going? And also front load uh, strategic planning and how do I act or respond? So when, when businesses these days are excellent at responding to crisis afterwards, they've gotten very adept at, at reacting and simply use the excuse, well, it was unpredictable, so I could only react. We argue that the world is not unpredictable. 
Events may be unpredictable, but the flow is not unpredictable. And therefore, you can think about, okay, let's say we anticipate that Russia is going to, uh, for the next three or four years, really continue to be as expansion as it can around its periphery because it knows it's hitting a major demographic crunch and is going to have to pull back in and focus on that. And it's trying to create a secure buffer space around itself, focus some of its resources on the east. How is that going to change? So two or three years of continued uh, significant friction in the Balts and down along the the periphery all the way down to Ukraine, but then maybe a stagnation or a pullback of Russia. How does that change the behavior and the economic activity of Poland and the focus of Poland? How much is Poland pulled towards Germany during the leading part of that? How much does Poland feel a little bit relieved after that? Does that create new frictions between them and Germany and pull away? So you can start to think about those types of things that may have an impact on, on business or business opportunity, business continuity. And Poland's a growing population, large industrial base, strong central position in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And as you're watching for those, have a few plans or at least have spent a couple of days thinking about, well, what would I do if it starts to go this way or this way? And you can pull the decision-making earlier. Because as you see, oh, it looks like we're going towards this directionality at that inflection point. I better start putting in the first two or three of my, my plans, or at least now is the time to review my response plans rather than after the event happens. So in that forecasting, geopolitics helps people think in that longer term. If you think about uh, macro lines for companies, right? When companies do do their 10-year planning and they build those beautiful macro lines, they bring in all of their economists and things and they build a macro forecast and it's almost always the little hockey stick, there's a little wiggle at the bottom and then there's this straight line up to 10 years, right? And their, their models work very well, economic models work very well in like years one through three. And then they don't work in years four through nine. And then they sort of work at an output at 10. And what geopolitics can help you do is, for lack of a better phrase, put more wiggle in your macro line. Because if you think about, if, if, even if the 10-year the outcome is what you anticipate and it's accurate, you know that it's not a linear line to that 10-year. There are going to be up years, there are going to be down years based on, based on uh, the, the systems of global economy and accessibility. If you can use geopolitics to put that in, it may tell you two years earlier or two years later a particular capital investment. Delay it a little or accelerate it a little in anticipation instead of trying to think along that pure straight line path. So again, in the forecasting, um, it fits into both the strategic planning and it fits into the responsiveness and to the identification, ideally, front-loading early of crises, and it helps you then avoid thinking every single day, every single new piece of information is a crisis because it shrinks that space of volatility. Because again, the, the purpose is to say geopolitics, which is normally the realm of strategic planning, military planning, and things like that, really does have not only a day-to-day application for business, it has that strategic planning for business, but it does have that day-to-day implications of business, particularly in our world where the information flow appears both excessively volatile, uh, excessively large, and perhaps uh, excessively unreliable as well. That's it for this episode of the Stratfall podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Stratfall's geopolitical methodology and how we use that to focus on what's truly important now and in the future, be sure to check out On Geopolitics. It's a collection of columns on Stratfall worldview that speak to the very nature of our work and how we put theory into practice each and every day. 
We'll include a link in the show notes, along with some other related analysis, so that you can see how individuals and organizations apply Stratfor's analysis to their work. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe to learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access. Worldview members can also contribute to this conversation in our members-only forum. If you have a comment or an idea for a future episode of the podcast, email us at podcast at stratfor.com or give us a call on 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, to leave a message. And if you have a moment, also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. We love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for joining us. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Stratfor.